0: The year is 609 B.C. Josiah is the last godly king of Judah, but he is the greatest king since King David. He initiates reform. He seeks God after his own heart. He is the only king other than the Messiah, I believe, that is actually directly prophesied of. He is doing all sorts of great things. He even gets some of the northern tribes to celebrate the Passover along with him, a Passover that, along with Hezekiah's Passover, Passover is unique since the time of David. People are starting to follow the path of righteousness again, and yet tragedy strikes. In the midst of all this, Babylon is on the rise. The crown prince King Nebuchadnezzar, brilliant crown prince with his Median allies and Scythian allies, is pushing back the Assyrian Empire. Within a matter of years, the Assyrian Empire will cease to exist, as a nation state. Nebuchadnezzar pushes the Assyrians out of the city of Haran. He keeps pushing them back. Assyria's last chance, and by this time, the dynasty of emperors is totally destroyed. It's generals taking power for themselves. Assyria's last chance is to retake Haran and hold it. Ironically, at this point, Egypt is heading north to assist the Assyrians, her old enemies. Enemy of my enemy is is my friend. At this point, Egypt has to pass near Jerusalem, and has to pass through Israelite property. Josiah naturally takes exception of that. Josiah is not a fan of seeing the Assyrians helped. He wants to see the Assyrians destroyed. Who can blame him for that? Josiah goes out to stop Pharaoh Necho, and Pharaoh Necho warns him off. Pharaoh Necho says, the Lord told me to do this. And Josiah, as would be expected, is like, yeah, right, that's what they all say. Now, if all we had was 2 Chronicles 35, 21, It would be appropriate to assume that Pharaoh was lying, that yeah, sure, he'll say whatever whatever it takes to avoid having a fight with Josiah so he can get to his destination, help the Assyrians to push back the Babylonians. Interestingly, though, verse 22 is the divinely inspired narrator speaking who says that the words of Nico from the mouth of God that is what Josiah ignored. So Josiah foolishly apparently ignores an actual message from God speaking through Pharaoh Necho. Now, God has already decreed that the Babylonians are going to rule the world, the the known world there in in that area. And so I don't know why God told Pharaoh Necho to go north and help the Assyrians. The Assyrians are condemned. The Assyrians are cursed. They will be destroyed. And this is precisely what happens. Uh, Josiah holds back the Egyptians long enough. In fact, Egypt actually ends up spending a couple years consolidating their power in Canaan. And Assyria, poor Assyria, has to face the entire might of the Babylonian army on their own, and the, the result is not pretty for Assyria. By the time Egypt gets up there, now Egypt, with just what few tattered remains there are of the Assyrian Empire, now faces the Babylonian Empire, and Babylon will defeat them 605 BC at the Battle of Carchemish. Why God wanted Egypt to go north, I don't know. My my theory is, and I I can't prove this, my theory is that even though God has given the known world to Babylon and even though the Babylonian Empire is next on a docket, it may be that the combined Egyptian and Assyrian armies together may may have at least slowed down Babylon. What would that have resulted in? An extra decade of peace for Judah? Imagine what Judah could have done with another 10 years under King Josiah. But that does not happen. Josiah foolishly goes out and picks a fight with somebody he should not have picked a fight with. Josiah is killed by archers. And after this, Judah descends into anarchy. Judah descends into godlessness. Judah continues to get worse and worse. It is against that backdrop that the prophet Habakkuk speaks. Turn to the book of Habakkuk, please, chapter 3. We'll read a couple verses here from the ending of Habakkuk. Then I want to work through this book. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk three seventeen through 19. We will be staying in the book of Habakkuk for quite a while, so keep your finger there. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive tree shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flocks shall be cut off from the field, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation." The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are about to go into the summer, a very dark summer compared to usual, A, a lot of uncertainty going on. Give us the foundation of faith that we need from Habakkuk and from Scripture And from the leading of the Holy Spirit, give us the foundation of faith we need to profit this summer for your glory, to glorify you, to praise you, and to trust you no matter what happens. And in Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk is unique among the prophets. It is a... It is not a straightforward oracle like you will see in Isaiah Jeremiah. There is no real direct call for repentance of sins to the people of Israel. There is no messianic prophecy, at least not direct messianic prophecy. Habakkuk does not even talk to the people of Israel like most prophets do. He talks directly to God and God talks directly back to him. Habakkuk is poetry, more so than the other prophets. Now, all the prophetic literature contains poetic material. Jonah 2 is straight up poetry. But Habakkuk is pretty much all poetry, but not just ordinary poetry. It is philosophical poetry. Habakkuk, at its core, asks the number one greatest, perhaps most legitimate philosophical question ever, if God is in control, why are bad things happening? Jay Heflin has called Habakkuk a prophet with an unorthodox approach, the role of the philosopher of religion. I wanted to take us through a tour of Habakkuk. It is a song in five movements. I want us to look at these five movements in turn and then draw some practical application from them. Movement number one, Habakkuk chapter one, Habakkuk cries out to God about the injustice in Judah. Things are not as they are supposed to be and God does not seem to be saying much. God does not seem to be paying attention. The, this is classic lament, much like the Psalms. He cries out to God asking why. O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee unto the of violence and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity? This is not a sin. It is not a sin in of itself to ask God why. It is not a sin to question what God is doing. Lament is a legitimate expression of distress to God Jesus lamented on the cross King David lamented under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the martyrs in Revelation six ten lament how long O Lord holy and true dost thou not judge F.F. F. Bruce writes this is not an instance of the earthen vessel finding fault with the potter who made it an attitude rebuked by Isaiah and Paul it is the one who answers back in unbelief to God that Paul says who indeed are you to argue with God But there are others who answer back in faith. The words when they do so are the expression of their loyalty to God. Habakkuk is asking God why, precisely because he knows what kind of a being God is. Habakkuk's cry of distress is that the bad guys are winning... And there is something about that that is contrary to the character of God. The Torah itself is paralyzed. He says, the law is slack. Judgment, justice cannot go forth from the Torah when God's people are so bound in iniquity. God's own people who had the benefit of the godly King Josiah, yet now in the aftermath of King Josiah's death, there is no justice, there is no judgment, there is no reverence for God, there is only iniquity. Now, God is very quick with his response, but you get the impression, beginning in verse 5, you get the impression that Habakkuk, listening to this, might have cried out, not helping, Lord, because what is God's answer? Verses 5 through 11, I'm bringing in the Babylonians. And how is that going to help? What God offers from verses 5 through 11 is a description of the Babylonians, They have defeated Egypt at Carchemish. They are making their way south. Perhaps by this time, they are in the process of conquering Judah. Uh, In Hebrew history, we take a look at the Lakish Ostreka, which is one of the, it is an actual letter sent by one of the generals or captains in the field to his superior saying, "Um, that city's lights have gone out and we're looking to you guys and we don't see any messages from you guys. What's going on? They're being encircled by the Babylonian army. It's a very depressing letter actually because you know how that war ends. So God is bringing out the Babylonians. They are, he goes, God God is a poet, by the way, and and, and that is very clear here in other places. God is a poet. He describes them as ferocious. He describes them as an incredible manifestation of his wrath against the nations. Um, There is even a little bit of an incredible alliteration in verse eight uh, in the Hebrew there, but the overall point is describing the Babylonians as something that is meant to strike terror into the hearts of those listening. They are an unstoppable force, but they are not a godly people. To the contrary, as one scholar writes, the description of them indicates that their character was rooted in self-sufficiency, that acknowledged no superior authority and no dependency, which was tantamount to self-deification. That is the point at verses 10 through 11. Their own power is their God. So God says, in response to Habakkuk's lament about injustice and unrighteousness in Judah, God says, just wait, here come the Babylonians. They're going to mop the floor with everybody. Habakkuk objects, understandably so. Verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk's answer does not, uh, God's answer, answer does not satisfy Habakkuk. It is not because Habakkuk is a rebel. It is not because Habakkuk is selfish or stupid. To the contrary, Habakkuk's obse- objections reveal how close he is to God and how well Habakkuk knows the character of God. Habakkuk's in a nutshell concern the cha- Habakkuk's objections in a nutshell concern the character of God. Notice that even before voicing his objections in verse 12, Habakkuk is very careful to affirm the goodness and righteousness of God. O Lord my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. Thou art from everlasting, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Verse 13, thou art of pure eyes, and to behold evil. This is consistently the pattern in Scripture. Those bringing complaints and objections to God can do so with confidence when they understand who God is. It is only when you acknowledge that God is good that you can then bring to God's attention the fact that things are bad. We do not go to God because we believe there is a flaw in God or his plan, but only because we believe that God is righteous and just and holy, and that's why it doesn't make sense what is happening around us. What it then is Habakkuk's objections, Uh, F.F. Bruce uh, summarizes it this way, should not Yahweh's instrument for the accomplishment of his purpose reflect something of his own purity and righteousness? In other words, God, how can you, a righteous and holy being, use such a pathetic, immoral, licentious, corrupt, violent group of people to accomplish your will? If you are pure and holy, since you are pure and holy and just, why are you using a defiled, corrupt, unjust nation as your instruments? How can you even stand to look at them? Habakkuk goes on. In the latter, last part of chapter 1, to describe the Babylonians as fishermen treating the rest of humanity like fish. And then to adding, add insult to injury, the Babylonians worship their nets and their dragnets as if they were gods. In doing so, they deny the one true God. Is this really the way things are supposed to be? Is God blind to the wickedness of the Babylonians? And here, now, beginning in chapter 2, is where we really get into the deep theology of the book of Habakkuk. Movement number four, God responds again. Now, before we get to God's response, I want you to notice a key point in the character of Habakkuk. Chapter two, verse one, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Habakkuk waits for an answer. He has absolute confidence that God is a God who responds. God does not need to be appeased with sacrifices in order for him to listen to us he does not he is not some vindictive god that demands uh, random sacrifices just so that he can listen to us to the contrary God hears our cries because he is our father God then affirms a couple things. He affirms the certainty of his degrees. In verse 3, the vision is yet from a point at a time. But he also affirms the necessity for others to know this vision. That expression there... In, in verse two that he may run that readeth it this is not referring to somebody running in terror because of the nature of the oracle this is rather referring to a to somebody who will write down the prophetic oracle and run with it and let others know this is a runner a courier if you will of God's of God's oracle but he affirms that the vision will happen he makes a statement that confirms that uh, then his own righteous character in verse four He affirms that he is righteous and just and true and that he sees the hearts of men. Verse four is key here. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. He declares on the one hand that a presumptuous soul, swelled up soul like those of the Babylonians have, cannot possibly be upright in his eyes. In other words, God has not changed his character. God's character is still eternal. God will still judge wickedness and bless righteousness. The Babylonians are no exception. It's interesting that Hebrew word for lifted up there, afal, it occurs only one other time in the entire Old Testament, and I think the point where it does occur is very interesting. Numbers 14, 44, they presume to go up upon the hilltop Nevertheless, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh and Moses departed not out of the camp. Here a group of Israelites in defiance of the Lord's command, relying on themselves and not the power of the Lord, dared to go up to the top of the hill presumptuously, at which point the Amalekites and Canaanites showed up and showed them the folly of their ways. The Babylonians are the same way, though. They are presuming something about themselves. They are presuming that they are self-sufficient, that they are capable of accomplishing their will without God. They are presuming that they do not have to answer to God. Such people cannot be right in the eyes of God. But there is a second half to that statement, and it is a key statement for New Testament theology. The Apostle Paul takes that statement as proof in Romans and Galatians that one is justified by faith just as Abraham was apart from the works of the law. The Torah is not a necessary means of salvation. Hebrews 10, 38 through 39 quotes it in a somewhat more negative sense as a warning, But it still affirms that one is saved by faith, not self-sufficiency. The overarching point is this, self-sufficiency, the presumptuous rejection of God in favor of oneself and one's own resources leads to destruction. But faith in God leads to salvation. This is the theological point of, of Habakkuk as one scholar writes, in a nutshell, the faithful community will wait with patience for what they do not see, the appearing of God's justice. The just man is justified in the eyes of God precisely because he leaves everything in God's hands and does not take the initiative to secure his own well-being, to secure his own destiny to secure his own salvation. The rest of the chapter then is a series of divine condemnations against the Babylonians. Having established his own justice and his own righteousness, having established the fact that he will not pass over evil, having established the fact that the soul that is haughty, that is self-sufficient will be judged and sent to destruction, God then declares, but I will bless, I will respond to the person who puts their trust in me. Chapter one goes on to describe. The, uh, chapter two goes on to the, describe the arrogance of the Babylonians. In verse five, verse six, according to some, is describes their practice of extortion and of taking that which does not belong to them. Verse twelve, the overall propensity to violence and evil. Violence in the Old Testament is the shedding of innocent blood. It's one thing to use physical force to defend one's country. Um, There's an entire chapter in Chronicles that basically talks about David's mighty men and how awesome they are and look how manly and the great deeds they did. But violence is a shedding of innocent blood. The Babylonians are going through shedding innocent blood, slaughtering indiscriminately, and that violence will come back to haunt them, God says. Verse 14 talks about the shameful deeds. They shame others. They cause others to drink the cup of their wrath wrath, and expose them as naked for the entire world to see. They shame others. That same shamefulness will come back to haunt the Babylonians. They themselves, God will make a public example of the Babylonians. God himself will shame the Babylonians in front of the entire world. I love how chapter 2 wraps up It, it, it of course, goes after idolatry. The Babylonians are shameful because of their idolatrous practice. That will also be exposed to the entire world for how pathetic it is. But then chapter 20, but the Lord, notice that's all caps, that's the divine name, but Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the perfect transition into then Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's prayer of faith in verse three. It is the decisive statement that, Who is in charge is not the Babylonians. Who is in charge is not the Jews. Who is in charge is none other than than God himself. And that will never change. This is reminiscent of Psalm 11. I want you to turn there real quick, please. Hold your place in Habakkuk 3 and turn to Psalm 11. And those of you that have me for hermeneutics, of course, know that this psalm contains one of my pet peeves. So forgive me, I might go on a little bit of a rant there. But notice the theme of Psalm 11 is stated in verse 1, in Yahweh put I my trust. This is David speaking. The theme is reiterated, returned to in verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyes let's try the children of men. It may be that Habakkuk is thinking of this very psalm while he is writing down both God's oracle and his own prayer after this. The theme is that Yahweh is in control and he will make everything right. Now notice, in the midst of that, there are, is an opposing voice that speaks against David. Perhaps some well-meaning but foolish counselors. How say to myself, flee as a bird to, the mount, to the, your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrows upon the string. They, they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And my pet peeve, of course, is verse 3. Forgive me, but um, verse 3 is not King David speaking. Verse 3 is his counselors speaking. How do we know that? Because verse 3 is absolutely antithetical to verse 4. How dare we ever claim that the foundations can actually be destroyed when Yahweh is in his temple? The very idea is absurd, and yet sometimes, and I speak to myself here as well, sometimes we take that as a slogan. Whoops, you know, uh, President Obama, Hillary Clinton, you know, they're, they're making legislation, they're being elected, the Democrats are being elected, the people are, you know, the wrong people are getting elected in power. Uh-oh, they're making laws restricting religious freedom if the foundations be destroyed. I. I apologize, I mean no offense to anybody. That's a slogan that independent Baptists and conservative evangelicals like to use. But it's quoting the wrong person. The foundations can't be destroyed. Yahweh established them. The very idea, he is in his temple. Who is in charge? It's Yahweh. He is the one that is in charge. He is the one that will try the children of men. He trieth the righteous and blesses him, but the wicked and him that loveth violence... The Babylonians, Habakkuk is thinking of right now. He will destroy them. The Lord will destroy them. He hates those that love violence and the wicked. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstones. A horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of the Lord. For the Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth uphold the upright. Psalm 11 then affirms the character of God. God that he is still the same God that he still can look upon righteousness and only righteousness that he will not tolerate wickedness. Back to Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20, but Yahweh is in his holy temple. Almost word for word what Psalm 11 is saying. And then let all the earth keep silence before him. This then leads into Habakkuk's prayer of faith, which I think gives us some key points of practical application. Number one, he acknowledges God's response in his prayer of faith. He acknowledges God's response. I have heard thy speech and was afraid, O Lord. And then he calls for revival as well, that God will make alive his work. That is the definition of revival here in in verse 2. That God will cause to be alive again his mighty works among his people. He will, in his wrath, remember mercy. From here, Habakkuk has a extended poetic description of the one true God and his mighty power and his mighty works. This is classic Hebrew poetry. There is parallelism here. There is vivid imagery. There is metaphorical language. Verse four, uh, this, is, this is just funny from a modern English perspective. Um, and his brightness was of, as of the light. He had horns coming out of his land and there was the hiding of his power. I read one scholar, and I think he's totally on track here. One scholar talking about that this is in reference to lightning coming out of God's hands. Metaphorically speaking, of course, lightning, what does it resemble? It resembles horns, right? When you look at forked lightning in the sky, from a certain perspective, it resembles horns. And that way, lightning comes forth from God. He is powerful. He is mighty. He does what he wishes, it ends, the psalm ends with a statement in verse 16 of Habakkuk's own trembling at the thought of God's awesomeness. This is not a trembling as if he is afraid of what God himself will do to Habakkuk personally. That is a, this is a trembling in awe. That is a trembling in awe of what God will accomplish against the Babylonians. In fact, that last verse there. Let me offer you my own my own translation of those last two verses to just bring out the force a little bit more clearly. Which I am waiting for the day the trouble will go up upon the people who have invaded us. Here Habakkuk is anticipating God's righteous judgment of the Babylonians. Now. To a certain degree, we recoil at that, wishing evil upon our enemies, right? God does want the entire world to get saved, and yet we also have to remember that God is a God of justice. There will come that time when, when God rains justice upon the world, and that includes judgment, that includes destruction of the wicked. God will rescue his people. Habakkuk's faith is in the fact that God will indeed intervene in history he will indeed destroy the arrogant while vindicating those who trust in him he will indeed bring indeed bring to pass all his promises and when it happens it will be spectacular it will be obvious to the entire world sometimes God speaks in a still small voice but when it comes to judgment and justice it will be proclaimed throughout the earth lightning will spring forth from his hands it will be very obvious God is in charge of the universe and of history, and he will decisively act in history. All of this is linked to that key theological statement in chapter 2, verse 4, about the character of God and how he responds to people. The soul which is lifted up, which is swelled up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. O.P. Robertson has written, the whole book is a poetic elaboration of chapter 2, verse 4. Despite all the cataclysmic cataclysmic calamities and judgments that shall come from the hand of God himself, the justified by faith shall live by a steadfast trust. This permeating theme of the book now finds explicit elaboration in terms of the necessity of God's intervention for faith to to be victorious. Faith triumphant in the life by the intervening power of God is the theme of this chapter. I want to repeat that phrase by Robertson. Faith triumphant in life by the intervening power of God. The, then the final verses here that we read at the beginning indicates Habakkuk, the, the depth of his faith in God. It's been noted by scholars that verse 17 is, it, it, it's a increasing order of calamity. I mean, if the fig tree and, and the grapes, you know, if they perish, okay, we can still survive without that. Olive oil is important for cooking. Well, that makes it a little bit difficult to survive. But once we get down to the second half of verse 17, now we're talking about, you know, starvation. We're talking about famine. Now it becomes even more difficult to survive. Yet in the midst of all that, Habakkuk declares his willingness to trust in the one true God. Not just to trust, but notice verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Why? Because he affirms the fact that God empowers him that God will rescue him. God will cause Habakkuk to be as sure-footed as a doe upon upon the mountains. He will make him to walk upon the high places. God will establish Habakkuk and keep Habakkuk safe, no matter what happens. Now, let's talk about, let's take a few minutes and talk about what we can learn about that practically, the nature of Habakkuk's faith, the nature of this book in the Old Testament. Number one, True faith exalts the power and salvation of God. The book of Habakkuk is all about what God is doing. The emphasis is on God's mighty works, not Habakkuk. You barely learn anything about Habakkuk at all. We in fact, out of all the minor prophets, probably Habakkuk is the one that we know least about. And Habakkuk doesn't really do anything. I mean, from a certain perspective, all he does is whine. Why? 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 And yet through that interchange with God and Habakkuk, we we do learn some key points, that it's all about God and what he will do. The more we exalt ourselves in our ministry, the more we draw attention to ourselves, the less time we have to draw attention to God, The the less we have of Habakkuk's faith. True faith will always exalt God. You can accomplish things through great faith. Hebrews 11 is all about that, right? But the minute you start drawing attention to yourself... At that point, you start to veer away from what actually is true faith. True faith points people to God as the solution, not ourselves. What is it that stands out in your life? What what is your dream? What is it you visualize about your ministry 10 years from now? Is it look what God is doing or look what so-and-so is doing? Is it look what God is doing or look what Paul Himes is doing? What is it that should drive our motivation? True faith exalts God. Number two, true faith waits for God's answer. I I love that point where Habakkuk just says, I'm gonna wait now. (laughs) True faith does not demand an immediate answer. True faith does not get impatient. True faith says it's God's timetable, not mine. True faith is willing to wait. I've struggled a little bit with just understanding um, the book of Job to a certain degree because Job has legitimate lament and it's funny i talk about this in hermeneutics you know health and wealth gospelers they cannot stand the book of job why because Job is a good guy that has bad things happen to him. According to the health and wealth gospel, in air quotes, according to the health and wealth gospel, if you're a good guy, good things happen to you, you get that new car, you get that role in that, you know, you get that role in that movie, and I'm basically quoting Joel Osteen here, by the way, uh, you get that, you know, you get that, uh, you get that promotion at your job. Why? Because God wants you to be happy. And so they can't stand the book of Job. But I've struggled with the book of Job because Job is a righteous man. His lament is legitimate. His friends are wrong. We know that because God himself says so. And yet at the end, God does get in Job's face a little bit, doesn't he? And I've struggled with understanding, okay, where is it that Job went wrong? I wonder perhaps if it may, maybe it's impatience and starting to demand an answer. Because in Job's poetry, you get to a point where Job starts picturing himself in court with God, defending himself with God, and and it almost, I'm not totally sure about this, so please study this out for yourself, but I wonder if maybe Job crossed the line, not in his lament, because lament is legitimate, but he crossed the line when maybe he perhaps started demanding the right to answer God on behalf of his innocence, as if somehow he needed to prove his innocence to God which is weird because other times he affirms that God knows his innocence. So I don't know, Job is a complicated figure, but I wonder if maybe that's the problem is a little bit of impatience, you know, Lord, I demand right now the opportunity to talk to you. And that's not how it should be with us in our life. True faith is willing to wait. The answer may not come for a while, but true faith is willing to wait. True faith deals with worst case scenarios, point three. True faith deals with worst case scenarios. Habakkuk imagines, and this is both at the corporate and the individual level, Habakkuk pretty much imagines the absolute worst things that can happen to him and his country. And yet he says, in the midst of that, I will rejoice in God. I I want you, in a minute, in our final word of prayer, this will be sort of perhaps the equivalent of a Zoom invitation. I want you to be thinking along those lines, what are some of the worst things that can happen to me and my country? Perhaps it's a car accident, perhaps it's a disease, perhaps we all get COVID-19 and spread it with each other, you know, per, I, I don't know. What is the worst thing that can happen to me? I want you to take a minute and visualize that. This is not something that you need to share with anybody, but visualize that and then think, can I rejoice in God in the midst of that? In a few minutes, we're going to close with a prayer, where right? I want you to actually do that and talk to God about that and, and affirm that his goodness, and affirm your ability to rejoice in him no matter what happens this summer, no matter what happens in your life. Can you believe that God loves you, that he hears you, that he will respond to you no matter what the circumstances? This was the power of Habakkuk's faith. It's easy to love God when good things are happening. It's easy to love God when you get an A on the test and, and, and so forth. It, it's, but the test of your faith is going to happen when the other things happen. Number four, true faith rejoices in God in worst case scenarios, not just trusts in him. It's one thing to sit passively trusting. It's another thing to proclaim to the world the goodness of God in the midst of tribulation and suffering. And that's what marks out the great men and women of the Christian faith is not only did they endure suffering, they proclaimed God's goodness in the midst of it. Number five, true faith has no plan B. Habakkuk has no room for idols. That's very clear in chapter 2. And please understand, it in the, in, in the ancient world, as well as some places today, the issue is not whether you worship the one true God. The issue is not whether you worship Jesus. The issue is, are you worshiping Jesus alone? In ancient society, even Greco-Roman society, they didn't really care if you worship Jesus. Okay, it's odd to worship a crucified Jew, okay, but whatever, to each their own. We have Mithridates, we have, you know, we have Apollos, we have all these other gods as well, so what's one more to add to the mix, right? There's always a plan B, because if one god doesn't listen to you, you can worship another god and see if he'll listen to you. And if that god doesn't listen to you, then well, you know, let's try another one. There's always a plan B and a plan C and a plan D in the ancient world. And even in Japan today, worship of ancestors, worship of Buddha, worship worship of the millions of Shinto gods, right? Sure, if you want to add Jesus to that mix, no big deal. It's a little bit weird, but whatever to each their own. Ah, but to declare that you're worshiping Jesus alone, okay, that's something that can get you kicked out of the home. There are plenty of examples of synchronism in ancient Judah. An amulet was unearthed in in, uh, Israel, invoking the blessings of God, using the divine name, invoking the blessings of Yahweh and his consort Ashtaroth. That was a problem with Israel. It's not that they didn't worship the one true God. They did. The problem was that they worshiped everybody else. It's significant in 1 Kings 19, 18, when God tells Elijah of the remnant that he has, God does not say, I have 7,000 in Israel who still worship me. He does not say that. What does he say? He says, I have 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. The test of loyalty to one true God was not whether or not you worship him, it's who else do you worship? God's measure of a person's faith was not, is not whether or not they are trusting in him, but whether or not they are trusting in him alone. That is why it is impossible for a truly committed Roman Catholic to be born again. Now, there are Roman Catholics that are born again, despite the system. We, we believe that. Okay? One can be a Roman Catholic and be born again, but not if you're a consistent one. Why? Because the blood throws, flows through Mary's hands. Mary is the intermediary. There is another Savior than God, and it's Mary. Mary. True faith acknowledges that there is no plan B. If God cannot save us, there is no other hope. I I like what Peter said. It was so insightful, especially coming from Peter. Peter had, you know, Peter's career is, it has ups and downs, right? But Peter said, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Plan B says all our eggs are, uh, uh, true faith says all our eggs are in the same basket. All our money is bet on one horse and one rider. We have sold all our stocks but one. There is no one else we can turn to. There is no plan B. If God cannot save me, I do not have the option of worshiping anybody else. It is God, all or nothing. Habakkuk recognized this. Habakkuk recognized that when famine strikes, he has no one else to turn to. He must keep trusting and rejoicing in the one true God. Number six true faith anticipates God's salvation and vindication. It will happen. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was not the final statement about the topic. There was still the resurrection. The resurrection was God's vindication of his beloved son. Without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. In the same way, we anticipate, no matter how badly our bodies are racked with pain or disease or whatever, no matter how much we may be suffering on this earth, no matter how much we may be going through, we, we anticipate God's resurrection of us and his creation of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where justice will reign and peace will rule. This reminds us of Hebrews eleven six. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. True faith not only acknowledges that God exists, it believes that God responds, that God will step in and make things right. Then number seven, Truth faith involves talking with God. Habakkuk talks with God. Do you actually talk to God when you pray or is it a ritual? Now, there's nothing wrong with set patterns. It's always good to start out with praise and so forth. I've tried to uh, make that as my pattern, to always start out with praise. It's good to confess sins in your prayer. There's good to have patterns. I'm not saying patterns are wrong. But do you actually talk with God in your prayer? He is a person. He is a being. And he desires a relationship. He is our Father, and we are his children. Do you talk with God? Do you ask him questions? Do you share with him how your day went? Do you ask for help in a personal way, not in a rote, not as rote ritual? So here's the question. What lessons can we personally learn from Habakkuk's faith in this age of uncertainty? How does our faith compare with Habakkuk's faith? And in closing, and just maybe perhaps anticipating the summer and and trying to set the tone for the summer, here's what I wanna do. I'm I'm gonna pray. I want each of you to pray along with me. I want you to pray a very personal prayer. I want you to declare God's goodness in your life and to say that no matter what happens, you will proclaim God's goodness. You will have faith that God will intervene in history, that all will be right in the end, and that no matter what happens, you will proclaim God's goodness. This is a very personal prayer. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it by yourself, but I want you to join me in this prayer as we close out the semester. Dear God, it's an uncertain time. There's COVID-19 going around, there's closures of churches. There's just difficulties for a lot of people. But you are good, and you are in charge. Lord, I don't know what will happen to me. I don't know what will happen to the students. I don't know what will happen to the other faculty and staff here, but you are always good. If I catch COVID-19, you are good, and may I proclaim it. If I'm in an accident that cripples me, you are good, and may I proclaim that. If I catch a disease, if, I, if something happens to those I love, you are good, and may I proclaim it. If people forsake me and I become lonely, you are good and I will proclaim it. If there is persecution of me or my friends and we are put into prison, you are good and I will proclaim it. If America collapses, America is not the foundations. Democracy in America is not the foundations. Religious liberty is not the foundations. If all of that collapses, you are good, you are in your throne in heaven, and I will proclaim it. If we lose some civil liberties, God, you are good, and I will proclaim it. If religious freedom suffers as a result of this, if America suffers an economic collapse, if a Democrat gets elected president, Lord, you are still good, and I will proclaim it. Whatever happens to me personally, whatever happens to those I love, whatever happens to America, Lord, you are good, and I will proclaim it. May each one of us do that. Bless us this summer, Lord, and in Jesus' name, amen.